Now, as we start this morning, I want you to think back uh, to last week. I want you to think back to the image that we saw of being stood in a courtroom before God. The charges have been read, but throughout the course of the first few books of Ro- first few chapters of Romans, all our excuses have gone, all our pretense is gone, and we stand there guilty of sin before a holy God. The executioner is at the ready, and we saw last week that we stand there in silence, with no more excuses to make, nothing more to say, only the horror of what's to follow. And at that point, a man walks into the court. Wait, says the man, and all eyes turn on him. And finally, it dawns on you what Paul has been trying to say all these weeks. What if my hope, what if my escape is not found in me at all, but outside me? The law demands righteousness, a positive, perfect, moral record. And as the previous sections have made abundantly clear, inside me I have none. Quite the opposite, actually, I'm unrighteous. But what if there was another way? What if there was another way to gain righteousness? What if there was another way to escape God's wrath? What if the answer didn't lie inside ourselves, but outside ourselves? What if the answer lay in that man with nail holes in his hands and feet who has just entered the courtroom? And that's our first point this morning. Our eternal destiny hangs on Jesus Christ. Have a look with me again at verses 21 to 23. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our eternal destiny hangs not on ourselves, but on Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I find that scary and comforting all at the same time. Paul is saying here that our salvation depends not on ourselves and what we can do, but on someone else. We could no longer produce righteousness in our fallen condition, but now, marvellous words aren't they after what we've been hearing, but now God offers us a new righteousness. One that is not our own at all. It is the very righteousness of God. God demands righteousness that we cannot produce. And as a solution, he offers us the righteousness that he demands. He asks for something and he gives us what he asks for. That's uh, sort of a quote from Augustine who said something along similar lines. Demand what you ask, but give what you ask. This is a righteousness that doesn't hang on the law. That's what we're seeing here. It's not a righteousness that you can earn. It's not a righteousness that you can get by following rules, by going through ceremonies, by doing good works. The previous chapter has made it abundantly clear that those things stand for nothing before God. They do not cancel out our sin or make up for in any way whatsoever for our sin. I think we understand this, don't we? Quite quite naturally as human beings. I mean, come with me to a a human court. Can you imagine a man standing in a a normal court uh, that we have? Yes, judge, I did murder the old lady in cold blood. But you should still pronounce me innocent. 
It's a little bit strange. So the judge says, right, give me one reason. Well, says the man, it's the first time I've ever murdered anyone. So you should set me free. And the judge says, no, that doesn't count, does it? That doesn't make up for your crime. So the man tries again. There are millions of old ladies that I haven't murdered. The judge says, no, that doesn't make up for your crime. Ah, says the man, but I've been kind to countless old ladies since. Surely it sort of balances out. The judge says, that doesn't make up for your crime. The man says, I've been religious. I've said 30 Hail Marys. The man says, the judge says, that's nothing to do with it. No human judge would, though, would, would fall for arguments like that. That there's some sort of balancing out with sin. That if you do something wrong, somehow doing something good cancels it out. No human judge would fall for arguments like that. Why would we expect God, the perfect judge, to go for arguments like that? You can't make up for doing sin by doing good. God does not have a pair of scales in his hand in this picture. He has a sword in the Bible as he judges. The righteousness that God gives has nothing to do with the law and keeping the law of Moses or doing good works. Except that the book of Moses, the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible, point to this righteousness that is coming. Point to the need for Jesus Christ. Indeed, the whole Old Testament does. That's what he's talking about there in verse 21, where he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets was another way to sort of say the whole of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament points us to the fact that righteousness is not by works or by trying to keep the law. And if you don't believe me, when you get home, go and read Hebrews 11. Or if you don't believe me again, read chapter 4 of Romans, which yeah, unfortunately is coming in a few months' time rather than next week. But Paul is going to prove it, that actually the whole Bible points towards not works... But faith, we'll come to that in a moment. But Paul is going to prove it, but we won't get there this moment, uh, this morning. So this righteousness doesn't hang on the law or doing good. It never has done, it never will do. And we finished with this last time, uh, didn't we? It doesn't hang on ourselves. The righteousness that we get here doesn't belong to us in the first place. It's the righteousness of God. So our salvation hangs not on what we on us to perform, but on God to save. This is a righteousness that Jesus had. Remember how we said a few weeks ago, as we were looking at the earlier chapters of Romans, that the only truly righteous person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. Only one person in history has ever, in the words of Romans 2, 7 by patience and persistence in well-doing, sought for glory and honour and immortality. Jesus is really the only ever person who merited in himself eternal life. And it's his righteousness, his right standing before God, that we need. Our only hope of being found righteous before a holy God is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to somehow get his righteousness for ourselves. If we had his righteousness, we might somehow be able to escape God's judgment. So our destiny hangs there, not on our own righteousness, but on Jesus' righteousness. But how do we get Jesus' righteousness? Well, the Bible's answer is one word. Faith. 
We grasp hold of Jesus and his righteousness by faith. That's where we've been going in Romans since uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the righteousness in that verse is not the terrifying righteousness that Martin Luther thought that it was, the terrifying justice of God, even though that's the same word. It's the righteousness of God that God gives to us when we put our trust, our faith, our belief in him. Those are three words, trust, belief and faith, of same way of translating the same word in Greek. We believe in Christ and it is credited to us as righteousness. Now believe here carries the idea of trust, of faith. I believe in Judas in the Bible, but I wouldn't trust him. I believe in Brutus who stabbed Julius Caesar in the back, but I wouldn't put my faith in him. Why? Well, because those people are not trustworthy. They're not faithful. When it talks about faith in Christ, those who believe it, it's more than just agreeing that he existed or even that you believe that he died and rose again. It's actually trusting in him. It's faith in him that lets go of our own attempts to save ourselves. To put it in an English phrase that we say often, it's putting all our eggs in one basket. Really, that's what faith is. His basket is where we're to put them. Now, normally the phrase, isn't it, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Because it sounds risky, doesn't it? But risk is what we do when we trust someone, isn't it? If we trust someone, we're prepared to take risks with them. The more trustworthy you believe someone to be, the more you're prepared to risk. Someone once said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. If you say you're believing in someone, but you're not prepared to risk anything, then you're lying really, aren't you? So are you prepared to put all your trust in him before the judgment seat of God? To plead his righteousness, to plead his blood rather than our own before God. To entrust your life to him now, an eternal destiny to him now, into his hands rather than your own. You see, all of us are in the same boat, aren't we? So all of us need the same solution, faith. It says here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we were designed to display God's glory on earth. We were created in his image to show his glory on this planet. In Romans 1 and elsewhere in the Bible, the two words, image and glory, are sort of used interchangeably. So Romans 1.23, and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. To fall short of God's glory then is to not correctly display his image. We've been seeing, haven't we, in the opening chapters that we're all distorted in our image of God. We're all corrupted. And if that's true of all of us, nobody here is perfect, nobody here fully displays the image of God, well, it means then that all of us need the same solution, faith. All of us are on the sinking ship. All of us need the lifeboats. There's no other option. 
There's not one way of salvation for the Jews and another way for non-Jews. There's not one way of salvation for outwardly immoral people and one way for uh, moralizers. There's no good works for some and faith for others. All of us have the same problem. So all of us need the same solution, faith. But how is it, I don't know if you've ever wondered this, how is it that faith in Christ solves our problem? It's all right saying trust in Christ and all will be well, but how will it be well? How does that make a difference? Aren't we in a crisis? Didn't we see that last week? That actually we have these huge problems, our guilt before God, our slavery to sin, uh, the fact that we're under God's wrath for our sin. However trustworthy he might be, actually we've got huge problems, haven't we? You see, I think my Mother's Day, isn't it? I think my mum is really trustworthy. You know, I like to put my trust in my mum. I think she's good in a crisis. But if the problem is that I'm in a sinking ship in the middle of the Atlantic, then having faith in my mum probably wouldn't do much good. Unless my mum happened to be a lifeboat captain in the vicinity, it probably wouldn't make much difference, would it? We are in that crisis. And actually, the reason that we can trust Jesus, the reason that trusting Jesus makes a difference, is that he can overcome those huge problems that we have. You see, faith in one sense is not magical. Faith only works if the person that we're trusting in can do something about our problems. What our faith does is connect us to Christ. But if Christ can do nothing about our problems, then being connected to Christ will do us no good. So what we really need to see is that Christ can really solve our problems. So that trusting in him to solve them rather than ourselves really matters. Well, we're going to see now that Paul proves that to us. Jesus has solved our greatest problems. We can have faith in him and it can work. Have a look with me. Uh, Oh, I have. Yeah, have a look with me at verse 24, first part. So for all have sinned and fall short of the uh, glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We saw that we're guilty before God. That's one of the things that Paul's been proving to us. Paul took that list, didn't he, of all the sins that we do, like a charge sheet to us. And in chapter 2 he told us that even if we disapprove of those bad things, actually we're in just the same boat because we actually do versions of them ourselves. We're guilty before the judge. But now, Jesus has justified us. We are justified freely by his grace as a gift. To be justified is to be declared righteous, to be declared not guilty. And here he gives it to us as a gift. The word there, gift, is translated elsewhere as without payment or without cause. So I put John fifteen twenty five on the back of your notice sheets. John fifteen twenty five. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That phrase there, without a cause, is the same word that's used here as a, a gift. What it's saying really is there's no reason why he should give it to us. He was not doing it in return for anything else. He wasn't giving us payback for something that we'd done. This righteousness that he gives us, this justification, was a gift, a present to us. It also says that it was of grace that he did this. 
Grace in the Bible means something undeserved, unmerited favour from God. It's something that you get that you don't deserve. It's something by definition that you cannot earn. So Romans 4 verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. The word gift there is actually grace. So even the word grace has the idea of gift, but it's given to him as his due. Or Romans 6 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, again grace, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In both those cases, it's contrasted with a wage that you earn. Grace is something that you cannot earn. It's a gift. So if you go before God on judgment day and demand that you are given what you deserve, what you will get is judgment. That's what we've seen. But God in Christ offers us grace. Grace as a gift. It's almost like he's falling over his words to try and get across the idea that this is free. God, for no merit of our own, justifies us, declares us innocent. He grants us righteousness as a gift that we need only accept. How can he possibly do that, though? How can he give us Christ's righteousness? Well, he exchanges it. He exchanges our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. He does a swap. We get his Righteousness and the eternal life that goes with it. He gets our unrighteousness and the damnation that goes with it. We are justified, declared not guilty by the judge. More than that, he declares us positively just, innocent, righteous. Christ, on the other hand, is punished. And that's what was happening on the cross as Jesus died. As the sky turned black, as the earth shook... Jesus was being punished for our sin. The penalty that we deserve was laid on him. And we, in turn, gained his righteousness. So he can do it because he can do that amazing swap. We can be declared righteous so that we're no longer guilty before God. But we saw, didn't we, that there were other problems that led to our being guilty before God. We saw that we are slaves to sin. Remember that last time? Or earlier on, we've been handed over by God to our enemy, sin, as part of his judgment upon us. We saw that in Romans 1, 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. We saw that actually, even if we were declared righteous, we're still slaves at this point, if you like. But now... Jesus has redeemed us. Have a look at the second part of verse uh, 24. Or the whole of 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus has redeemed us. The word redeem there means to buy back or to pay the price to someone freely, to free them. You meet it still in English when you redeem a token or a voucher. Uh, shop, don't you? You get the money that someone else has paid back in what you buy. In Paul's day, it was used in the context of slavery. If you could earn enough money, you could buy yourself out of slavery. Or alternatively, someone else could buy you out of slavery, but buy your freedom for you. But in this case, it's Jesus that has redeemed us. 
He has set us free from slavery to sin. God handed us over to be slaves, but Jesus has paid the price by his death to free us. As it says in Mark, he gave his life as a ransom for many, a a payment to release someone. And the language that's used here is that we are justified through our redemption in him. Our justification is made possible by our release from slavery. So all three of them feed into each other as we go along with our big three problems. How could someone who has sinned as their master be declared innocent of all sin? Well, because Jesus now has freed us of our master. We are no longer slaves to sin. If you have questions about that, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait there as well. Because Paul is going to deal with that in chapter 6. All these things are throwing up questions and he's, he's going to deal with them in the following chapters. But what we need to understand here is that Jesus has freed us. We are redeemed in him. Our slavery is gone because Jesus has paid the price to free us. But there was a third problem, wasn't there? The root of all the other problems. That we had rejected God and God is angry at us. Without his wrath being removed, if you think about it, the cycle might just start back over again. Remember, we had that root sin problem of rejecting God. God handed us over and we did lots of sin and were guilty. If we don't solve the original problem, then actually the cycle could just start all the way over again. But we are under God's wrath. That's what he's been saying. Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we saw that even the outwardly moral among us are in the same boat. Romans 2 verse 5. But because of your hard heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we're under God's wrath for our sin. But now, Jesus has solved that problem too. Jesus is our propitiation. You might notice these are some of the big words that end in shun we've been doing over the the past few weeks. But he's our propitiation. Jesus has taken that anger, that wrath, on himself. That's what the word means. For all who believe that anger was directed from us to Jesus hanging on the cross. All that anger, all that wrath was laid on him. And he propitiated God. He soaked up all his wrath as it was poured out on him on the cross. This was the wrath that was due to men and women who had believed, who had trusted in God for millennia. It was poured out at that point on him on the cross. All the wrath at his people's sin was placed on him. As it says elsewhere, he became our sin for us. He took the bullet instead of us. He wore the hangman's noose instead of us. So that God now can no longer be angry with his people. All the wrath that would have been poured out on us was poured out on him. He took hell for us on the cross. That's what was happening as the sky turned black, as the earth quaked. So that if we are one of his people this morning by faith, there's nothing to fear from God anymore. He's no longer our enemy but our friend. As uh, Mike was saying earlier, we've been reconciled, we've been made friends. Because his displeasure was poured out fully on Christ on the cross. How do we enjoy this new status as friends rather than enemies? 
Well, we do it by faith. Have a look with me again at verse 25. Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. You see, the value of all this is not how trustworthy our faith is, but in how trustworthy the object of our faith is. Do we believe his sacrifice was enough to soak up the wrath of God that none is left for us? Do we believe the blood he shed was sufficient to redeem us from slavery to sin? Do we believe that his righteousness is sufficient to declare us innocent before God? It's by faith he's saying here, but the point is not how strong or weak your faith is, but what your faith is in. And whether your faith, however strong or weak, is in Christ and his sacrifice. See, faith is a bit like the mouth that takes the medicine. The point is not how, how wide we open our mouth to put the medicine in. It's actually the medicine, isn't it, that heals us, that saves us. Faith is the hand that shoots out of the water when we're drowning. The point is not how beautiful and flawless your hand is. It's actually the, the strength of the hand that grasps you and pulls you out. What matters is his strength of hand, if you like, not ours. Our faith will always be imperfect, because we are imperfect. What matters is that our faith is in his sacrifice alone to set us right before God, and not in anything or anyone else. Our faith may sometimes seem weak. It may often feel weak to us. But if it is in Christ alone, then that faith is saving faith. Because the value is not in the faith, but in the sacrifice. A sacrifice that works backwards and forwards. Do you see that at the end of verse 25? This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Every sin in history by his people ends up paid for at the cross. And we see his justice in that every sin is paid for. Either by Christ on the cross, or people who don't believe by taking it themselves. There's perfect justice here. As we expect from a perfect judge, wouldn't we? God remains just, um, but is also the justifier. Sorry, I've gone off my notes here. Let me go back a second. Sacrifice works backwards and forwards. It works backwards and forwards. In salvation history, before Christ came and after Christ came. So God is saying here, in his divine forbearance, he's overlooked the sins of the past. He's not punished people for their sins in days gone by. You've trusted in him. He's laid it all on the cross. But it also works forwards to us. So actually, if you think about it, how could Christ pay for our sins that hadn't yet happened? Yet Jesus' sacrifice is outside of time. It's atemporal. It works backwards and forwards in salvation history, but also in our lives. So sometimes you get this weird idea that our Jesus' sacrifice only works for the sins up until you become a Christian. After that, you're on your own. You get that idea in Roman Catholicism that after you're baptised, it's up to you then. And you'll be punished for any sins you do afterwards. But actually, no. Jesus' sacrifice works for the sins before we're saved and for the sins after we're saved. 
Which means that actually God has, has punished all our sins by laying them on Christ, past, present and future. And that is what shows us his justice, which is what I was saying before. Have a look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The amazing truth of what we read here is that God has overcome our unrighteousness while remaining righteous. Every sin in history ends up paid for, either by Christ on the cross or by unbelievers by themselves. There's perfect justice. Every sin is accounted for. And in that way, God remains just. He hasn't just swept sin under the carpet. If he did that, if you think about it, he would be a bad judge, wouldn't he? He hasn't cancelled our debt without a payment being made. If he did that, he'd be ignoring justice, wouldn't he? He hasn't just stopped being angry at things that are due his anger. God doesn't just get over his hatred of sin. I mean, what kind of God would give up his indignation against things that were wrong, against the sins of the world? No, he's still angry at sin, but now that anger is directed at Christ. He becomes like the lightning rod for our sin that takes the lightning instead of us. The lightning still strikes, but it doesn't land on us. God punishes sin, but he does it in a way that means he doesn't have to punish us. So God doesn't become a bad judge. He becomes the most amazing judge that we could ever imagine. Not perverting the law, not using legal fiction, not getting us off on a technicality like some hack. He really, legally, absolutely declares us free. There is nothing more to pay. There is no more punishment to take because Jesus paid it all. Jesus took it all that he might justify us and yet remain true to himself, to his own righteous nature. What wisdom, what sacrifice, what love from God. For whom? For us, his people. Paul writes at the end of this longer section in Romans that goes all the way up to chapter 11. He writes this at the end of his argument. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counsellor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's saying who other than our great and wonderful and wise God could devise such a plan? Justifying people, yet remaining just. Which brings us to our last and shorter point. The outcome. All the glory goes to God. Have a look at verses 27 to 31. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What it's saying here is that if we're saved by faith, then any boasting on our part is excluded. Not because there's a law against it. It's not like a new rule. 
but because salvation by faith alone, by its very nature, excludes boasting. Because salvation by faith alone means that our salvation has been accomplished by somebody else. I often use my illustration of of opening a jar. Uh, In my house, it's it's a big thing for me as a man to be able to open the jars in my family. I don't know if it's the same in your family. But could you imagine someone going around with a jar that's open saying, Hey, look at the jar. Isn't this amazing? Someone else opened it for me. I'm amazing, aren't I? It wouldn't make any sense, would it? We can't boast when it's been done by someone else. And that holds true for Jew and non-Jew. The Jew in chapter 2 used to boast in having the law. But why would they boast in having the law now? It was the law that condemned you. The Gentile in chapter 1 used to boast about their sinfulness. Why would you boast about that now? It was the reason for your condemnation. There is one God, it says. Not one God for Jews and another for Gentiles. One God... And so one way for Jews and Gentiles alike, faith alone. Now this poses a huge question. One that Paul is only going to begin to answer here. Does the fact that we're saved by faith overthrow the law? In other words, what is the role of the law then now? Well, that word overthrow, it's used several times in Romans... It's used in verse 3 of our same chapter to mean nullify. In chapter 4, verse 14, it means void. In chapter 7, verse 6, it means, but now you are released from the law. And it's used in the same sense in 7, verse 2. And his answer is no. No, faith doesn't overthrow the law. Why? Well, I want to argue because the law was there to point us to faith. That's what we've been seeing all the way through the chapter, isn't it? In Galatians, Paul puts it like this. Again, this is on the back of your notice sheet. Galatians three twenty four to 26. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The first purpose of the law, says Paul, was to lead us to faith in Christ. How can we then be nullifying the law? How can we be overthrowing the law when we're using the law in the way that it was intended? Just because it hasn't been used that way in the past doesn't mean that wasn't the way that God intended it to be used. So actually, he's saying, by by having faith in Christ, we're upholding the law. We're doing what the law was supposed to point us to. Does that mean that once we're saved, we're no longer obliged to obey all the laws and commandments of Moses? You'll have to wait for chapter 6 to be precise on that one, because that's another question that Paul will look at. In fact, I imagine after this, we're left with many questions. And what will follow as we carry on through Romans, we're coming back to it in September, is almost like a question and answer session. So all the questions that you've got in your head, you're very welcome to put them on a blue slip. But my answer might be... Actually, we'll deal with it in September because he's going to look at all the questions that these things that he said about salvation by faith alone throws up. But for now, let's look what we've we've seen. Let's put ourselves back in that heavenly courtroom that we started with. If you remember, the man has walked in and shouted, wait. He follows on by saying, wait, these crimes have already been punished. 
And he shows at that point the nail marks in his hands and the wound in his side and his head that's bloody from the, thorn of, from the crown of thorns. But this criminal is a slave to sin, shouts the prosecution. I've paid his price, replies the man. I've paid it with my blood to set him free from sin. But the judge has been offended by this man, cries the prosecution. He must face his wrath. I've taken his wrath on myself, replies the man. There's no more left for this man to take. The judge then chips in, I agree. This is my will too. I am the offended party and I am no longer angry with this man. In fact, he's now like a son to me. The charges are dropped and he is innocent of all crimes in my sight. The man with nail-pierced hands comes up. The chains fall off your wrists. He takes you by the hand and leads you out of the courtroom a free man. It turns out that he's done this for countless criminals. He's paid the price for them all by taking their sentences and buying them back from slavery by his own blood. What do you think the topic of conversation will be the day after? Do you think the man who is a criminal will be singing his own praises? How great was I? Look at how strongly I held his hand as I came out of the courtroom. Look how masterfully I made this happen. You'd have to be deluded, wouldn't you, to think like that after such an amazing thing had happened. No, the glory would go to the nail-pierced man, to Jesus Christ. What fool would boast in himself after being rescued by Jesus? It's not so much that it's against the rules, but it would make no sense whatsoever. So if you're boasting in yourself, then you haven't understood the magnitude of your rescue at all. What a saviour, what a friend, what a rescuer. If you were looking at yourself at all, you'd be thinking, why me? Why would he do that for me? It certainly wouldn't lead to boasting. Funny then, isn't it, that in so many churches, they become places where we minimise our rescue. Maybe not by outwardly boasting in ourselves, but certainly making out there hasn't been such a great rescue. Either we make ourselves out to be better than we are, or we think and talk little of Jesus' rescue. I suspect that all of us are guilty of that in some ways. And if that's you, there are three options, really. The first is that you haven't really understood the seriousness of sin. If you're minimising your sin, you haven't understood how bad it is. Reread the passages that we've read in Romans up to this point and ask God to show you the reality of your sinfulness. The second option is that you haven't understood the completeness of Jesus' rescue. In which case, reread this morning's passage. We were guilty, he declared us innocent. We were slaves, he redeemed us. We were under his wrath, he became our propitiation. It's a perfect match. He's done everything that we need to overcome our problems. So reread this passage and ask God to show you the awesome completeness of Christ's rescue. The third possibility, if you're minimising your sin, is that you haven't experienced Christ's rescue at all. It's possible that if the message of salvation doesn't move you at all, perhaps you haven't experienced that message, that truth. Have you put all your trust in Jesus? Or are you hedging your bets? Have you put all your trust in Jesus? Or do you think that there's something that you must contribute? All that we can contribute is our sin. For Christ to do away with. Christ has done it all. There is nothing we can bring. 
Nothing we can contribute. Nothing we can supply. And as Christians this morning, there's still nothing that we can bring. Still nothing that we can contribute. And still nothing that we can supply. Why? So that all the glory goes to Jesus. And on that day when we are stood, not judged, but as friends of God, we can give thanks for his sacrifice. We'll be praising the Lord Jesus, not ourselves, because it's him who's done it through his sacrifice. So salvation doesn't depend on ourselves, but on Christ. Let's pray that we will put our trust, all our trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the amazing truths we've seen this morning. That Jesus has done it all. Father, there is nothing more that needs to be done. Father, to be friends with you, to to not face judgment. Christ has done it all. So Father, pray that all our trust would be in him. Father, not in ourselves to save ourselves. Not in our good works or our, our things that we do. But Father, pray that all our trust, however strong or however weak, would be in him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.